Well, good morning, everybody. So grateful to be with you all. Um, I'm so grateful to be a part of this community. Um, you all are, are special to me, and uh, it's, it's great to be family. Um, I want to invite you all to um, something special. So I um, have uh, had the privilege of getting to help lead our uh, ministry, our mission to university students here in Boulder. And, uh, and on, on February 7, that's a Tuesday night, in the chapel at 8 p.m., it's a normal annex time. I think we have a slide for this. Is there, is there one queued up, Doug? Maybe there is, maybe there's not. No slide? Don't worry about it. My announcement will be so searing in your memory, you won't forget. I'll be like an AM radio ad. February 7, Tuesday, 8 p.m. It's normal annex time. We're calling it All Church Annex. We would love for you to come to annex. Many of you have never been to an annex. Most of you probably haven't been to an annex. They happen a little later at night, 8 p.m. on Tuesday nights, February 7 in the chapel. And we want to invite you and show you what the Lord is doing um, in, that, in, in that space, in that community um, that, um, that this church has supported and, and made possible. Our students will be leading the night. You won't get to hear from me, which is a mercy to you all and a blessing because um, my favorite are our student-led annexes where our students get to share what God is doing in their life. And uh, we would love for you to, to experience that with us. So February 7, Tuesday night, 8 p.m. in the chapel. What day is it? Howard, what day? Tuesday, February what? Perfect, 8 p.m. in the chapel. Okay, wonderful. We're doing a series here at Grace Commons on Sabbath called Made for Us, The Gift of Rest. And uh, I don't know about you, but this has been a... a an experience, kind of like an exfoliating spa experience, <laughs> where you, it doesn't feel good, uh, diag the diagnostics don't feel good, but the results, if you lean into them, do. And, uh, and I hope that this morning is an experience that's similar to that. So let's pray as we uh, uh, prepare to hear more about Sabbath this morning. Lord, um, would you be our teacher this morning? Would you, by your spirit, Teach us uh, and show us uh, our, our heart's condition, what may or may not be structuring our life, and Lord, we pray that we could submit our, our way, our heart, to you and to your son who calls himself the real rest. So help us to be open. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I think you could make a case that Ayn Rand is one of the most influential thinkers of the 20th century. Influential in the way that we think. And you don't have to have read Atlas Shrugged, I hear it's really long, or The Fountainhead, to know your influence, our influence, from Ayn Rand. Ayn Rand advocated for what she called, this worldview called, that she called objectivism, which is quite a presumptuous uh, idea to think that you... <laughs> can think completely objectively. And, and summarize objectivism is this. The concept of man as a heroic being with his own happiness as the moral purpose of his life, with a pr productive achievement as his noblest activity, and reason as his only absolute. Breathtaking, right? Personal happiness 
Ayn Rand advocated is our greatest good. There's nothing more important that you or I could pursue than being happy as individuals. Our own productivity, our profitability, what we can make and produce and amass for ourselves is the noblest thing that we can do. And the only thing trustworthy in the world is our own reason, our own truth. Now, you might think, wow, that's very presumptuous. But I happen to respect Ayn Rand because she just said whatever, what everybody actually believed without admitting that they believed it. Amen? Amen? I think the culture, the, the gospel that our culture preaches sounds a lot like Ayn Rand. The water that we swim in is shaped more by Ayn Rand, I think, than most other influential thinkers. Our culture tells us that our personal happiness is the thing that leads to wholeness. And so why wouldn't pursuing our own happiness be the most important good? Our culture is vehement about protecting our individual rights to pursue happiness because we regard happiness as our greatest good. What's more important, left and right in our country, both believe that our individual rights are the most important things to protect, are they not? And wealth is seen as this essential vehicle for personal happiness, security, identity, status. You are who you are, vocationally, you are what you make monetarily. And therefore, in our culture, one of our highest virtues is a virtue I want to call maximum extraction. Maximum extraction. Getting the most profit from a resource or opportunity. Maximum extraction. And we see the practice of maximum extraction around us. And I would contend all of us participate in this virtue ourselves as well. In agrarian culture, we have, it, it, uh, through technology and wisdom and maximum extraction, figured out how to grow incredible produce in the middle of a desert in central California that ordinarily grows nothing. When the land can't grow plants, we introduce synthetic fertilizer and make the dream a reality. Things that don't work for a particular purpose, we make for our own purpose, for maximum extraction. If a land is no longer fertile, feed it fertilizer. Our economic system here in America is built around the profitability and growth of publicly traded companies. Once a company enters the ecosystem of the stock market, its most important contribution to society is its stock value. How much is it worth? How much does it grow? And we all have seen the effects of maximum extraction when it comes to the profitability of stock value in company systems. 
Oh, they just laid off, I think, 12,000 people at Amazon. Do you think it's because they ran out of office space in Seattle? I think somebody's concerned about the, the, the stock value. In our country, we see consumption as a patriotic duty. Have you ever made a purchase for something that you didn't need and said to yourself, man, I am sure helping out the economy right now. <laughs> we laugh about it, but I love helping our economy. Do I need it now? But if I get a new car, the good people of Michigan will be blessed by my consumption. <laughs> Maximum extraction. We see this especially in celebrity culture. The people we idolize most, the people we worship with our attention, with our curiosity, with our reverence, are the people who extract the maximum from their opportunities. Uh, I recently uh, learned about a, a, a well, he, this man is obviously famous to many, but not famous to my generation. I was a King Griffey Jr. baseball kind of guy. But Joe DiMaggio, um, you can make a case, is the greatest, was the greatest baseball player to ever play the game. He won nine World Series with the New York Yankees. It's unfathomable. And he was very proactive in making those victories so. Three-time AL MVP. 13-time All-Star. He was the richest, most successful baseball player, and he married Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> the man who had it all. In 2000, this, auto, uh, this biography, it was not an autobiography, this biography came out of Joe DiMaggio. And most of society reviled the biography because it told the truth about Joe DiMaggio. Yes, the most accomplished baseball player, but a man who lived by maximum extraction, who to his very last dying days cared the most about being the richest, most successful person in the room. He died mostly alone, surrounded by people who were only interested in how to profit from him. This is our idol. The thing about maximum extraction, sure, you might be rich for a day. And as scripture teaches, woe to you who are rich because you have it now, but one day it will not be so. So maximum extraction, profitable for a while. But maximum extraction always leads to destruction. There is a limit to everything's healthy productivity Every resource is limited. And when we destroy the things and the relationships and the systems around us in order to profit, eventually it catches up with us. We see ecosystems collapsing all around us. We see, as uh, Randy shared, people dying from overwork. In economic terms, we call it the law of diminishing return, and yet we still persist. I find it surreal to watch us, knowing that our actions collectively as a society are leading to the collapse of the world around us. 
and yet are unable to collectively stop because we want to extract the profit that can be had for right now. Here's how this connects with Sabbath. There's a different way. We need not be disciples of Ayn Rand. Sabbath rest is a rebellion against this worldly kingdom, this very spiritual worldview of maximum extraction for personal pleasure. A maximum extraction is a false gospel. Sabbath is the invitation of rebellion against that system in order to rest in a different kingdom by letting our systems of productivity rest. Exodus 23, Topher read this, but I'll read it again. This is Exodus 23, 10 through 11. This is what might feel like an obscure agrarian law tucked into the Torah, but I find this to be very instructive and a great invitation in principle for us today. It says, for six years, you are to sow your fields and harvest the crops. But during the seventh year, let the land lie fallow, unplowed and unused. Then the poor among, a poor among your people may get food from it and the wild animals may eat what is left. Do the same with your vineyard and your olive grove. This teaching says, for six years, be a farmer. Plow your fields, harvest your crops. And this is an agrarian community. This is the occupation, right? Nobody's going to work for Amazon if you're not a farmer, right? This is the entire ecosystem, the entire economy. So for six years, do the work. And on the seventh years, it says don't do anything. It doesn't even say get a different job. Just try something else out. Do a crop rotation. It literally says, for the seventh year, knock it off. Stop working. And this is an unthinkable thing for us. And I'm not going to advocate you take every seventh year off. Maybe that's the conviction for you. Sounds kind of nice, but uh, probably not. But the principle at hand here is one that provokes, I think, the most essential questions about the way we think about who we are as people and how the world is held together. And this sabbatical law reorients the people of God towards those two truths, who we are and how the world is held together. There are two fruits of submitting our systems of productivity to sabbatical rest I wanna talk about this morning. I wanna contend that when you take Sabbath, based off of this, uh, this uh, what feels like obscure Old Testament law maybe to you, that the invitation is for you to take a time, a day, a period of your life to no longer be productive in a profitable way. And that there are two essential fruits that come from that practice. First is this, submitting our systems of produ- productivity so to sabbatical rest grows trust. Submitting our systems of productivity to sabbatical rest grows trust. (laughs) You may ask, what are people 
and an agrarian society supposed to eat in year seven all the way through the harvest of year eight. It's interesting they asked that back then. Leviticus 25 literally says this. You may ask, <laughs> what will we eat in the seventh year if we do not plant or harvest your, our crops? This is God. I will send you such a blessing in the sixth year that the land will yield enough for three years. While you plant during the eighth year, you will eat from the old crop and will continue to eat from it until the harvest of the ninth year comes. It sounds a lot like the teaching of Jesus. Don't worry about tomorrow and how things will be provided for you. Instead, do what? Seek first what? The kingdom and its righteousness. Live as a disciple of my way and trust that I'm the one that's holding these things together. Not you and your obsessive work schedule. Not you and your self-provoked productivity and your maximum extraction. I'm the one holding it together. Would you like to see that? Letting our systems of productivity, productivity rest is a practice of trust. I mentioned Squawk Mountain Greenhouses and Nursery, a humble family-owned greenhouse and nursery in the Seattle area. If you ever are, are in the area, it, it might be worth a visit. And this is a business that my parents have owned since they were young adults, newly wed, and, uh, and, and grew as a business. And it was their conviction that, that their business, as followers of Jesus, this was their conviction, was to be closed on Sundays. And my entire lifetime, I think for the entire time of this business, Squawk Mountain has always been closed on Sundays. Now this is just a matter of observable public truth. You could see this without being the son of Jim and Becky Palmer. It's been around for over 40 years. It's been closed every Sunday since it's been open. Squawk Mountain Greenhouses and Nursery is one of the few remaining family-owned nurseries in the area. And I have to tell you, as a teenager, I observed, I started to get wise about how this business worked. It's a very seasonal industry. Nobody's out buying geraniums right now, right? You buy geraniums for about a month and a half. And most people are homeowners who have jobs Monday to Friday. So you make your money for about six weeks on Saturday and Sunday. I asked my dad once, Dad, why aren't we open on Sunday? We'd be killing it. Well, son, Sunday's the Sabbath. I remember looking at the forecast in really busy Mays, praying, Lord, may Saturday be a sunny day. And may Sunday, may the torrents <laughs> of rain descend on the earth so that everybody shops on Saturday. Sometimes, yeah, in Washington, it's, it's not unthinkable. There were some weeks in May where the opposite was true. And I have to tell you, we always had what we needed in our family. We always had clothes to wear. We always had food to eat. We always had shelter over our head. We always had money to give. And the business still persists. The Lord provides when we trust him. 
Do we trust him? Or do we trust only our rational selves, our hardworking profitability? Is that what holds the world together? Submitting our systems of productivity, point number two, to sabbatical rest also creates space for health in the whole system. Notice in, in the Exodus text, it says, on that year seven, don't harvest, but you know what? There's actually going to be stuff to eat that comes up. And, and let the poor eat it. Let your workers eat it. In Leviticus 23, it elaborates on this Exodus 25 text. And it even says, you're welcome to go eat it. There's going to be enough. When we let the system of productivity rest, naturally, it allows for health to reset in the systems. We see this all the time, right? When we just stop, like in the Seattle area, if you clear cut something and you just let it be for 50 years, you're going to have a forest again. But just don't do anything else to it, you know? Our systems naturally reset. There's space for those in need to also be provided when we stop extracting the maximum just for ourselves. I want to share a little window into our sabbatical practice as a family, which is at its very infant stages. I have to tell you, a couple months ago when Lindsay Waymeyer said in our group, okay, we're doing this thing on sabbatical and you've got to start practicing it because you're going to preach it. And I thought to her, you don't know that I have a seven-year-old and a four-year-old. There's no such thing as rest. <laughs> but then I was assigned this text and I realized, okay, the point of sabbatical rest is not just to have a silent retreat every Sunday, a quiet time that lasts six hours instead of six minutes to be an overly spiritual person. The invitation in principle, although that might be a part of it, is a day where you don't get to be productive holding the whole world together. And so this is what our sabbatical rest has looked like when we practice it. First, alignment with the whole system. Here's what I've discovered. Aaron and I need to do it together. Aaron's my wife. It's really hard for one of us to try and not be productive while the other person is running around the house being productive, i.e. Mary and Martha, right? There's a tension there. So do it together. If you're the holdout in your family because you think sabbatical is bonkers, you think your whole life is going to fall apart, you think that Old Testament law has nothing to do with, with, the, with the Christian practice, even though Jesus practiced Sabbath himself, we're his disciples. If you're that person, just try it, Okay. Let the system rest together. Okay, so alignment in the whole system. Now, our kids are just like, they, they're great. We're like, you're not on your phone doing work. So they're not arguing with it. It's wonderful. Okay, so first, alignment together. Second, abstaining from vocational work. So we're off of our email on Saturday. Please, I mean, if you text me, you might not get a response. I hope you don't. Okay. We abstain from buying things or managing things. What I've noticed is when I'm not working, a lot of my time goes to stuff management. The stuff that I've accumulated with my wealth then consumes the rest of my time. Most of the errands that you and I run is stuff management. The more cars you have, the more times you have to get oil changes. Stuff management, okay? So knock off stuff management for a while. You can buy that thing on Amazon on the day after. It'll still be there, probably, okay? 
we stay off the screen. For us, it's really hard to not be connected to work and to stuff and be on the screen. So we just turn the screen off. We have a record player at home. So we just do, you know, manual, you know, the, the, the needle on the record. And if we don't have it in the selection, it's like, we'll listen to it tomorrow for the most part. So we listen to, you know, the Doobie Brothers and other things from my mother-in-law's uh, high school collection. And it's great, okay. And that just creates space to enjoy each other. Enjoy breakfast. Yesterday we spent a couple hours watercoloring together. I haven't done watercolor for pleasure in over 20 years. I did a pretty exciting sketch of John Denver. Some kids came over and joined us. And there was space to connect, it was beautiful. Very simple, addition by subtraction, okay. The invitation though, friends, is this. I need to stop talking so that Heidi can come share. The invitation is this. Without thinking about it, I would contend that most of us are at least uh, somewhat disciples of Ayn Rand. People who believe that our own pleasure is the greatest good. Our own profitability is our noblest contribution to the world. That we hold it all together. And maybe you wouldn't write that in your personal theological statement, but you write it in the way you live, in the way we live. Sabbath, a weekly, day-long break from a system of productivity allows us to reset to the truth that it is not us who hold our worlds together. And when we allow for that space, the Lord, who is our rest, restores us in ways that only he can do. Now, having experienced some of the goodness of that, I find it crazy to try and convince anybody that they should do it. It's the most wonderful thing. Why would we not? Stop it. And enjoy, says the Lord. Stop it. I want to do the farming for a year. I'll do the provision for a day. You take a break. This is who our Lord is. This is the gospel that the world needs. A ragged world that's falling apart because it cannot stop. It's addiction to maximum extraction. Enter Jesus and his gospel. Come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you what? Rest. Trust me. Heidi Topher, please come and share. Thank you. Thank you, Dave. And thank you, Heidi. So in medical training, there's this adage I was thinking about this morning, which is see one, do one, teach one. And I kind of feel like I've been living that the last three weeks. So starting in the audience, sitting in Heidi's seat last week and moving over here. But the good news for all of you is that this is not another time for me to share, but rather we get to focus on Heidi Potter this morning and her experience as she has, uh, I guess, tried to embody some of these principles of Sabbath. And so just a little bit about Heidi. She is a longtime member of the church. Her association uh, with this church goes all the way back to the day of her birth. 
uh, as part of the Fleetmeyer clan. She's been married to Lucas, her husband, for 20 years, coming up on 21. She has two children. Daughter Tate is a junior at Monarch High School, and like many modern Boulder families, she has a son, Colin, who is at a different high school, Fairview High School, so managing the two high school uh, situation, and she is a practicing attorney, kind of in a transition from civil litigator, so don't argue with Heidi, uh, into, uh, I guess, a future desire to be a mediator. And I just learned that Heidi really loves crafts. She loves to sew. Uh, she loves other crafts, maybe even to dabble in friction, uh, fiction writing. And in my conversations with Heidi, I also learned that there's really, I think, a depth to her soul that I am hoping comes out uh, today. And so thank you, Heidi, for joining us. Thank you. And Great to be here. Let me just ask as we get started, so why did you start practicing Sabbath? Well, I was leading our common space group in the cycle when we were studying Sabbath, and we did that last fall. And um, I hadn't been in co-leadership in our group yet, and I felt like, okay, if I'm gonna be leading this, I probably should try it. And so I did. Um, you know, we had always gone to church or watched church on Sundays, but beyond that, it, the Sabbath was uh, a little bit of a mystery to me. So, you know, listened to all the stuff, watched. It. We were doing, the series was through Mark Comer, Practicing the Way of Jesus, and it was a four-week series, which we broke into like eight weeks and tried to, in, you know, just start this practice and see what would happen. So I am not up here as someone who has mastered this or who speaks to you as a, a professional Sabbath taker. I am a novice and working my way through it. Yeah, well, thanks, Addie. Well, maybe give us a little, you know, peek behind the curtain. What was Sabbath or Sunday like before? And what does your routine look like now? We heard a little bit from Dave about his routine. What does yours look like? Yeah, so um, I think I'm the poster child for, for this sort of busyness in some ways that were described uh, a working mom and, and a, you know, sort of stressful, high energy, start of the day all the way to the end of the day working and just sort of surviving, honestly, that work week. Then I would come up to the weekend and that was the time that I had to do all the errands, all the cooking, the laundry, the things that I would do as a mom to keep the family going at home. That happened during the weekend and in my mind couldn't be done in just one day. And so, you know, laundry was always started on Saturday and finished on Sunday, and there were all of these, these things. I'll tell you that for most of my life, I suffered from what I like to call the Sunday blues in the evening because the weekend's over. And through what we're about to discuss as the new practice, don't really have the Sunday blues anymore because I wasn't working the whole time. I think that my you know, sorrow at the weekend coming to the end was that I never really got to enjoy the weekend because I was, it was just another work day. So that's sort of how I came to it. Although we would come to church, you know, it was press go the minute that we were done with church just so that I thought I could manage the week. Um, I've been on leave for about a year from work and even during that time that rhythm continued because it was so ingrained in, uh, you know, me trying to manage time and control what the week would look like as we entered into it on Monday. So that was then. Uh, my husband, and I really echo what Dave said, he also was a common space group, and 
uh, started this at the same time, which has been very helpful. Although I will tell you there are times when your spouse will start doing something and you have to try to stop yourself from saying, I don't think you're supposed to do that. Um, because there's some part of you that, you know, that becomes a little judgmental in this, which we'll talk about in a minute. But um, I, we start on Sunday, or excuse me, Saturday night with sundown. We finish at sundown on Sunday. Uh, it's going to be fascinating for me to see how that works in the summer, you know. But in the fall when we started, you know, pretty normal times for it to get dark and light. And we have a nice supper on Saturday night. We've experimented with Sabbath supper with, uh, you know, Christian friends around the table. And then from that point on, we, I don't look at my news feed. I don't answer emails. I don't surf the web. Um, I am a news junkie. I love to read my news feed with my coffee in the morning. I try to abstain from that on, on the Sabbath. I find that all of those things that drag me into the world and to the things that are out there are things that I try not to do. Um, there's been a lot of e interesting discussions with folks who are trying to do this too about, well, can you do dishes? Well, can you do this? Um, you do kind of have to set some rules for, for yourself. I think there is a part of that, but you've got to be very careful not to have it become legalistic. And as the oldest daughter, I'm like, you give me a rule, I will follow it. <laughs> you know, just give me the rules. And in reality, if you just get these rules, it becomes more about the rule keeping. And so I think you have to be really careful about that. But that sort of sent me spinning a little bit in trying to figure out, like, well, what am I allowed to do? What am I not allowed to do? Um, so a lot of, you know, reading the Bible, looking at, at what Jesus did and said about the Sabbath, watched a fascinating video that you sent out to some of us, which uh, followed a Hasidic Jewish family and their practice of the Sabbath, just looking at, you know, the ways that different folks do this. So... Yeah, does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the legalistic thing, you know, that resonates with me as well. You, you touched on it a little bit, but maybe, I don't know if there's anything else there. Are there things, you have the list of things that you don't do. We heard about Dave and his watercolor uh, adventure. Are there particular things that you actually as a family try to incorporate regularly? I guess we heard about your dinner. Are there other examples for people that you could, that you yeah, could share? Yeah, there are things that we do do. Um, definitely want to be, it, it's an interesting mix of community, Christian community, and alone time. So well, there'll be a part of the day like this where we're engaging with other Christians and uh, worshiping God. And then there's this whole aspect of delight in delighting in his creation. Uh, a lot like Dave described this morning, those are, I, I love to craft on Sunday. I love to read. Uh, we nap without feeling guilty about it. Some of those things that are, are good. I think the important thing too, though, is that it, there's this term in, in the study we were doing, sabbish. You know, you get to a point when you decide, yeah, I'm gonna rest, I'm gonna give myself this day, and it took me a while to get to that point. Once I got to that point, then it just sort of felt like mini day off. Uh, but this is really supposed to be a day rooted in the Lord and in, in being present with Him and present with His people. And so that is the next growing challenge for me, is how is the Lord present in everything I do that day? How is it that I am, you know, 
growing in my relationship with God and also really enjoying and delighting in all that he's given us, blessed us with, uh, you know, get outside, spend time with, actual time with your kids where they're not looking at their phone, you're not looking at your phone. Uh, you know, these dinners, you know, sharing a meal with someone is, is really, really great. I don't do dishes, though, on that day, and I don't cook on that day, so, you know, there, there's things that we've had to work out to try to figure out how do you be with people and be a host or not a host, you know, there's a lot there. But I think it comes down for me, really, Topher, and this was only in the last week that this little light bulb went out. It, it's that heart attitude. I think God isn't really looking at, did you, do the, did you do the dishes or did you not? What is your heart attitude? If that feels like work, if that's something that separates you from enjoying the Lord, I don't think you should be doing it. But as you and I have discussed, you know, there's some people who, you love to garden. I see garden, that's weeding to me, so I see that as work, you know? But there are people who really find God in doing that, and I think you can do that on the Sabbath. What's your heart attitude, and where are you um, with God present in that thing? Yeah, I think when we were chatting, that was maybe your key piece of advice for folks if they were starting, was to to keep that heart posture center. Um, You know, as we start to, to wrap up, are there any other particular joys or fruits that have come out for you that you've seen from this? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. What I've actually seen is that it spills over into the week. So I'm pretty good at worrying and, you know, definitely a professional in that. And I came up with this idea that I don't get to do that on Sunday. Is don't get to do it. And so when that starts to enter my mind, I'm like, you, I actually tell myself, you can do that tomorrow. I know I shouldn't ever do it, but that helped me to make that break. But then I find as I get more and more into the week, I don't have to do this. I can let go of that. I'm getting better at resting during the week. And so because, I've, because I have recognized and embraced this idea that you know, rest is actually really good for you and it makes you more productive if you rest, that I come to the end of the day, and I think we all hit this, and especially as you get older, at a certain point, you're like, I'm brain dead. Why, why am I still pushing and trying? And I'm just much better now about saying, you know, I'm done. I actually need to rest now before, so I'm better for tomorrow. So it's little things like that that I see it actually reflected in the week as much as in the day. Um, and then it's just so great to think, I look forward to it, Although I've had to really reshift my week. I don't do laundry. I realized after a couple weeks, I don't Sabbath very well if there's piles of undone laundry on the floor. So now I, you know, I reorganized the week so that I could get to the point that that's all put away and it's done. But man, I look forward to that because I just know, like, I actually, we get to take tomorrow off and, like, it's required. It's a rule. It's good. So, um, yeah, just delighting in that. Yeah. Well, I'd like to thank Heidi. Uh, Hopefully we can all thank Heidi for being open and vulnerable and sharing her experience. (laughs) Yeah.